I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. On today's episode of the podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dorian Chong, who amongst other titles is Chief Curator at Hong Kong's new M Plus Museum. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be reconnecting with you and uh, having a conversation post the opening of M+. Thank you for having me here. I wanted to start our conversation today with a quote uh, by one of my favourite artists, the US artist Dorothea Tanning, and the quote is, art has always been the raft onto which we climb to save our sanity. I don't see a different purpose for it now. And I wonder if perhaps you, Dorian, could... Um, respond to that or how you would respond to that, particularly in the context and the light of the current state of the world that we're in and I guess also given the current circumstances in Hong Kong. Yes, it is a, it's a great quote. So thank you for reminding me and, and sharing it with me. Um, and indeed, we are in um, a kind of a crazy place, <laughs> both in Hong Kong with the, the most challenging phase of the pandemic after um, more than two years, and of course, what it has been happening in the rest of the world that has been, um, you know, uh, dispiriting um, and worrisome. Uh, so it is good to be reminded of the power of art that the Tanning quote, I think, is really the making the point of. Um, you know, I mean, not just because of the very current situation of the world, but just given what we all have experienced in the last couple of years, or even longer in Hong Kong with the um, political turmoil that has lasted even longer than that, um, that I guess I've been thinking a lot about the, um, the therapeutic and healing uh, potentials and processes of art, not only for the audience, but also for viewers as well. And of course, it's something that um, I've been thinking about, not because of the state of the world over the last few years, but because we're opening a whole new museum <laughs> that is full of art and visual culture. Um, but more and more, uh, I keep thinking about examples uh, such as, let's say, Yayoi Kusama, you know, for over seven decades, she has been talking so much about her um, uh, mental illness and pains and sufferings, um, but uh, really been making art as um, not only for personal therapy, but as a way of really sending a message to the whole humanity and to the whole planet of how creativity has the power to heal. Um, there are many other examples throughout art history, um, not just Kusama, but you know many other mystic artists like the Swedish artist Hilma of Klint, and you know the list goes on and on. I think Dorothea Tanning could be part of that list as well. Um, I guess what that quote also inspires in my mind also that the whole image of raft um, is that art is uh, not only just a therapy for individuals, but that it's um, a crystallization, you know, of a particular experiences and emotions and perceptions 
of um, specific moments and times. Um, that I think it is difficult uh, on everyday basis to see clearly what is meaningful and what is going to be historically relevant because we are everyday experience the barrage of data and information and misinformation and disinformation that sometimes it is difficult to really discern what is important and what is uh, meaningful for us historically and from the perspective of humanity. And so I guess that image of raft really reminds me that art is uh, encapsulation or crystallization of what will be important um, for the future and in the future. So I wanted to talk to you a bit um, in detail about your role at M Plus. So I sadly left Hong Kong before the museum opened after having heard, you know, about this um, new uh, institution that was in the works and delayed and you know we've all been looking forward to it for so long and it's at the top of my list of things to do when I get back to Hong Kong. Um, but your role there is Deputy Director and the inaugural Chief Curator and I wanted to talk to you in particular about the curatorial role because I think mm -hmm. in this day and age you know, I think every Instagram influencer calls themselves or thinks they're a curator. It's probably one of the most misunderstood and overused words of our age. <laughs> and in, in light of that, I'd, I'd love for you to describe actually what your role is at M+. Um, of course, exhibition making is one important aspect of it, but um, especially when you are a curator that is based in a museum, then there's a lot more to curating than that. Um, uh, we also uh, build collection uh, through acquiring important works and objects and artifacts. Um, we are also uh, responsible for public programs and learning programs. Um, we're uh, also responsible for creating all kinds of content, whether it's in print or digital. In a traditional museum structure, all of the the functions that I described are uh, divided into different departments often, you know, curatorial, responsible for exhibition making and collection building, um, education department, and more and more the trend is to call it learning, uh, is responsible for uh, public and educational programs, and digital or marketing departments are responsible for website and other content and publication would deal with uh, the uh, books and other print matters. And then plus, we decided to bring all of those functions. So anybody who deals with generating ideas and contents under one roof, that's what I mean by curatorial writ large. And that's uh, really uh, what my team, my department does. And and yeah, and then that's, I'm, I'm responsible for overseeing um, that quite a large department. Uh, your background or your academic training was um, in art history and not necessarily in curatorial studies or curatorial practice. Um, That's right. Academic area of curatorial studies and theory seems to be relatively new and emerging. Um, and yeah. I think you've said in the past that your your academic background and training didn't really cover this aspect of the art world. And so mm. given that and given that the mandate for M Plus is, you know, essentially completely different to any other institution worldwide, 
Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the process of defining a curatorial approach to the museum across all of the departments. I didn't pursue a curatorial studies or curatorial training um, because I'm of the generation, uh, not to date myself, when um, there's a curating program. Uh, it existed, but it was a, a relatively new thing. Um, there were just a handful of um, institutions and programs out there. Um, and also, it wasn't really my career plan or ambition to become a museum curator. Um, uh, that's why I study art history, and I kind of fell into uh, the fell into museum work almost kind of by accident, um, by lucky accident, I should say. Um, where I really learned curating is by working uh, at really uh, well established uh, in very good institutions and they're working for and under very seasoned curators um, so i was able to go from uh, one uh, job opportunity to the next and the last two institutions that i worked at before moving to m plus about uh, over eight years ago um, were really in, important and, and informative for me so those two are the walker art center in minneapolis and the museum of modern art in new york um, and of course, there are two very different museums in the sense that one is in the Midwest and then the other is in New York. Um, but there are many similarities between them as well. Um, they are both old institutions as a modern and contemporary museum. Um, the Walker was founded in 1927. MoMA was founded in 1929. Um, and from the early on in their history, they really saw themselves as more than an art museum. Um, they both uh, studied exhibiting and collecting design. Um, architecture was an important part of it. Uh, cinema, uh, film and moving image and video um, also have been very important part of those institutions. And more recently, also performance and performing arts. Um, another similarity between these two museums is that they, uh, in more recent decades, have very consciously uh, developed a global outlook to look beyond the Western world to um, to Asia, Latin America, and um, and other places. So, um, so speaking of my curating approach to M plus, I really have to give credit to the these environments, these institutional contexts and environments that I was very lucky to be part of and make contribution to. I also have to uh, give credit to the vision for M plus that was already set uh, even before I or anybody came in. And that was done by a group called the Museum Advisory Group that convened around 2006, 2007. Um, and it's a group of cultural leaders from Hong Kong. And they are the ones who came up with this idea that uh, M plus shall be a museum that's multidisciplinary, that deals with not just um, art, but also design and architecture, popular culture, um, rooted in Hong Kong, but it shall also have global perspectives. They're also the ones who came up with the name M plus as a placeholder to indicate that it will be more than a museum. And of course, it's a great name, so it stuck. Um, and what I really think of my curating and you know my team of curators, our approach um, is to to really give to realize um, that vision that had uh, been put in place. So 
um, you know, so wisely and you know, in a in a visionary way for for us. And so you've actually said in the past about your role as chief curator that it's really more about managing curators or curating curators, I think were your words, <laughs> than curating art itself, although you have curated um, a number of exhibitions um, already since the museum has opened. Um, but I would love to hear you describe what you would, um, or how you would describe your management style then if much of your work is actually managing the team. Mm. I think, I mean, of course, I say a little bit with tongue in cheek <laughs> when I say that my job is curating curators, um, but there's there's truth to that. I, th I think actually what I uh, often say is that I'm an office manager. <laughs> you know, I'm a manager of office that is full of curators with many uh, coming from different backgrounds with uh, very diverse expertise in, um, yes, it is tongue in cheek, but also uh, in all seriousness that that um, my job as chief curator and the head of the curatorial department um, consists of ensuring that, that we attract and hire uh, and cultivate talents. Um, and then because again, M plus is multifaceted diverse institution, um, that you also have to play the role of being um, a connector between people, uh, you know, that again, come from different backgrounds and knowledge bases, and, and then draw out really the best from the curators, and then also find connecting points uh, to foster collaborations. Um, so I guess I've developed a sort of management skills that I didn't know I had. I mean, I really learned from my job, just like I learned curating um, in more traditional sense by just working at previous museums, that, that, um, that really identifying the, the people's strengths as well as the best ideas, and then, uh, and, and then identifying how to use uh, those talents and ideas in the best way to realize that, that the vision and mission of the museum. I mean, that I think is really the, the essence of what I think of as my uh, management skill as well as uh, my job responsibility. I want to talk a little bit about the process of building the collection. Now, I think, you know, as an observer, one of the most fascinating parts of M+, uh, particularly living in Hong Kong throughout that process of um, you know, the building actually being constructed was that the collection was being built before then or concurrently uh, and you were actually physically putting on shows before the museum opened. Um, mm. There were a number of really notable collections that were donated to the collection and I'm, I guess I'm thinking of the Uli Sig Contemporary Chinese Collection and William Lim's Collection of Contemporary Hong Kong Art, um, the two that come to mind immediately. I'm sure there are many others. Um, but, you know, I'm really curious to hear about the process of of building that collection and acquiring specific pieces and also the cultural programming before you started to inhabit that building, um, which is now, of course, a landmark on, on the Hong Kong skyline. But can you talk mm. a little bit about that process? Sure. Um, from the very beginning, um, we thought of the institution building process, this project, um, as uh, can be described in four parts. Um, and these were uh, 
you know, these were the words that were used by the founding director, Lars Nitfe, that we're not just building the building, we're also building a collection, we're building a team, and then we're building our identity, institutional identity through programs. So I really think that was a very useful way to visualize um, the the institution in a kind of you know abstract sense, well, going from abstraction to concreteness actually. Um, that this, if you uh, visualize this institution in you know in your head as a uh, a picture of a house, then it will have four pillars, and the building, collection, team, and programs were the four pillars. So of course, for um, for the general public. Uh, uh, who don't really understand what it means to build a museum, they only think of the, the physical building. Um, that's, of course, a very important, process, uh, important part, one of the four pillars, but that's really uh, just the vessel. And what's important is the content that goes into it, and then that's done by collection and programs, and that the team is the one who uh, uh, actualizes how that the content is delivered into the vessel that is the building. Um, so we did all these four things simultaneously um, from circa 2011 until the museum opened in 2021. So it was a decade long process. Um, and that they, of course, had uh, the close uh, uh, interactivity or close uh, interrelations with one another. Uh, building wasn't designed uh, in vacuum. Uh, the, of course, Herzog and Demeron, brilliant architect, um, they were responding to the brief that was put together by the museum team. Um, and, and the design process of the building that lasted for about a year and a half was a very, very close conversation. Many inputs were made um, to the architects and then they responded to that. And much of our input came from how we were envisioning and beginning to realize what the collection is going to be and what our programs, including exhibitions, were going to be. So that's um, the one uh, description of interrelation that I'm talking about. Collection building was especially uh, driven by the, um, you know, the, the, the vision that was put together by the museum advisory group that I was just speaking about that was further developed by the, the museum team that came into being um, starting 2011, 2012. Um, then by the time I joined in 2013, the, the three um, additional pillars, uh, we call them disciplinary pillars of visual art, design and architecture, moving image were very, very uh, clearly defined. And that became uh, a really a compass, if you will, of how to build the collection. But if I can speak a little bit more about the collection building, um, mm. it is a combination of a very uh, clear and um, rigorously uh, discussed and defined academic process um, when you have a bunch of academically trained curators but coming from different backgrounds. Somebody might be an expert in contemporary international art. Somebody is a, an expert in ink art. And then we have an architecture trained curator. Then, you know, you bring all of this, um, the academic training and knowledge in place. But that is not 
the only thing that is necessary for collection building. Um, in order to build a collection, that you have to have proper network of contacts, uh, whether it's artists um, and makers themselves, but also galleries, auction houses. Um, and when it comes to design, it might be design studios. Uh, when it comes to moving image, it might be cinema production houses. So you have to have context in um, these places because collecting is also about uh, the actual physical objects and the uh, uh, negotiations and persuasions um, to, uh, to um, make sure that these objects uh, leave the, the current owners and come to us. Um, and also the, the third part of the collection building is cultivation of uh, potential donors. And those two examples that you mentioned are great examples, two of the most important donations we have received so far from Dr. Ule Sig and uh, William Lim. And cultivation of their, their beliefs and convictions in M plus as the rightful uh, receiver of the collections that they built with all of their heart and soul. I want to dig a little bit more into that process of acquiring new work. I think, you know, one of the many interesting things about M Plus is, as you said earlier, that it's not just a fine art museum, that it is a museum of visual culture and that includes architecture and design. And I think there's been many conversations recently about what that actually means. How do you exhibit design works and architecture um, mm -hmm. when you're not displaying an actual building. Um, so, right. I, you know, I wanted to kind of dig into that process a little bit. Obviously, you have individual curators working in each of those departments. But, you know, I'm guessing from the outside, there is a great deal of research that's required and um, a process of relationship building. Is mm. there, you know, a kind of a typical time frame that's that that process takes? Or does it really differ depending on the item or the collection that you're trying to acquire for the collection? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really a range. Um, that, that there are many instances where we know exactly, um, let's say, like which artist that we want to acquire work from. Um, and it's a very clear communication channel with the artist and or the representative gallery or vendor. And then we identify the work and then we um agree um on the the price and then we present it to our uh, proper approving authority and then things get settled you know uh, through approval and then that can be a fairly quick process of um a few months but often it is much much longer than that and an architecture that you were referring to is a very good example because you don't typically acquire actual buildings, although, as you know, we do have a building <laughs> in the form <laughs> of the Kyotoma Sushi Bar um, mm. that we acquired and disassembled and reassembled, uh, and then that is now in on display in our gallery um, for a long time. Uh, but that is really an exception. Most of the architecture is acquired in the form of architectural drawings and models and a lot of archival items. Um, and th that process can of often be much more complicated and drawn out because um, of course, acquiring any archives, which can contain hundreds or thousands or sometimes even tens of thousands of um, 
of items uh, such as correspondences, photographs, and, and blueprints and whatnot, um, and going through all of them in the first instance by the curators, making sure that there are proper things that, that we want to acquire to represent an architect's projects and practice are there to um, involving also our own archivists to do their job, then you know there are many steps like that that has to have have to happen before we even bring it to the approving authority. There are some other examples where then um, that, that we have to do a negotiation with the architect to actually build commission and build models because they don't exist anymore. Um, so it the acquisition really doesn't happen in one way it can happen in many different ways and because we're a contemporary visual culture museum we're also dealing with code-based um, art or design and something that is ephemeral um, or interactive and so there's a whole range <laughs> of modes mm. of acquisition that, that we um, are dealing with and have become quite experienced in mm, that's so interesting i hadn't actually really thought about the digital side of um, mm. the, the artifacts or pieces that you may be displaying that, yeah, seems to be a, a very different world. Um, it's so interesting. I, I wonder, you know, I don't know if it's like asking you to pick a favorite child, but is there a particular piece or recent acquisition that, you know, you're mo more excited or more proud of? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is the who's your favorite child question. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, in addition to being the first, I like to think of myself as the first filter for all acquisitions um, that come to into the MPLUS collection. Um, and, and, and that that really has been one of the most, uh, you know, meatiest part of, parts of my, my job over the last eight plus years. Um, as I said earlier, that we have a very diverse group of curators with different backgrounds, but all, of course, uh, working towards the same goal of the institution of vision and mission. Um, when it comes to collection process, I really think of myself as the first filter that asks really rigorous series of questions, and you know, which are actually simple questions. I always ask why this artist or maker, and why this particular object or group of objects. Um, you know, and this sometimes, I don't know if my curators really like this metaphor, but I just say sometimes when I get pushy and I say, if I put a gun to your head, would you say that this is the most important thing by this particular maker? So they really have to make that rigorous argument first to their peers and to myself um, before it goes anywhere else. Um, to different levels of approving authority, because that is really the academic and historical exercise and responsibility that we must bring to um, every single acquisition for the collection. Um, so really, that's really more of my job uh, as the chief curator, but sometimes I do acquire certain things for the museum myself. Um, but I subject the, the same kind of questioning to myself <laughs> and I also ask my colleagues to ask me the same kinds of difficult questions. Just because the chief curator is putting something on the table, it's just, you know, it's just going to be approved. It doesn't work like that. Um, one example that I can think of, not because I think that it is the prettiest <laughs> or most expensive, um, but quite a meaningful 
process was to acquire a large group of works by Isamu Noguchi. Um, mm-hmm. You know, of course, the Japanese American um, artist, sculptor, um, designer, and mm. uh, landscape architect. So he's, in a sense, a perfect uh, artist for M. And what I mean by that is that because he really embodied in his lifetime, in his person, the whole cross cultural um, the reality as well as the ethos of the time that we live in. Um, but also, not only he's one of the most important 20th century sculptors in the world, but he wasn't just a sculptor of um, stones and um, bronze um, and other kinds of metal, but then also he was a maker of many iconic now design objects. Um, and of course, he's very well known for the uh, uh, what's called Akari light sculptures, which are uh, mm-hmm. paper and bamboo lanterns that, that he developed into a whole host of just brilliant forms. Um, he's also known for some of the most iconic furniture pieces, many of them uh, still in production. So the fact that, and then of course, he's a landscaping work. Um, creating playscapes, which is something that, that we are also developing for M plus soon to open, soon to be announced and open. So so in that sense, because he is he really embodied the multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary possibilities of form and shape making, he's a perfect artist, as well as being the sort of whole, um, uh, the, the cross cultural Uh, between the Western world and Asian world. So having identified Noguchi as a very important figure for M plus programmatically, but also in terms of the collection, we worked very, very closely with the Isamu Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum in New York, um, dedicated to, of course, preserving and propagating his legacy. Um, So it was through uh, working very closely with them, that we were able to acquire um, a a very important historical piece that's actually currently on view now, um, called The Strange Bird, uh, from the Foundation's Reserve Collection. And we also did something that's quite uh, unconventional, perhaps, that the Noguchi produced this whole series of um, two dozen sculptures that are all made out of galvanized steel. Um, in the 1980s, which are edition sculptures. Many of them are were not produced and at the time, and they are not available for purchase. So through uh, the relationship of trust that MPLUS developed with the Noguchi Foundation, that we came to an agreement that the foundation will produce um, the complete set of these beautiful um, abstract sculptures. Um, mm. and if I'm not mistaken, M plus is the first museum, first public collection that has the whole set of them, other than the Noguchi Foundation themselves. So this wow. was, you know, more than three year process of starting a relationship and really convincing them and gaining trust from this foundation that M plus is really an institution, certainly the only institution so far in Asia that uh, deserves to have a deep holding of Noguchi's work. 
um, and and then finally going through the more sort of nuts and bolts processes of negotiation, agreement, and making sure that the works are created um, to the specifications, and then additional, of course, layer of difficulty because of pandemic that we weren't able to travel um, mm. to to the fabrication site. So the further organizing. Um, appointed representatives on that side, you know, like all of these things um, had to happen for us to be able to have this group of amazing works by Noguchi in the Empress collection. Mm. That's a great example. Thank you. And I cannot mm. wait to see that. That's, yeah, that's really exciting. I hadn't heard that story before, so thank you for sharing that. Um, mm. I, I have one more question for you. Um, and that is, you know, in terms of your role and the role of a curator in the age that we're living in, which is um, incredibly digitised and, you know, obviously mm. COVID has changed a lot of how we interact with our physical world. Um, mm. You know, how ha have those two particular parts of, um, you know, contemporary society changed the role of a curator, if at all, would you say? Right. Well, there are a lot more curators <laughs> these <laughs> days um, and and of course you know many people call themselves curators or curating actually has become a known very well known uh, word at this point i mean i think when i started my museum work i guess at this point almost 25 years ago i don't think i even know what curator did even though i was an art history student um, certainly, there wasn't a word that was being used that often in the uh, late 90s, but I maybe starting sometime in the 2000s, it just became part of everyday um, popular cultural parlance. Um, mm. and, and, you know, maybe as a younger curator studying out, um, trying to really define what my uh, role is and what my, you know, ambitions are at curator, perhaps I felt a bit possessive and territorial about that type of curator. <laughs> but over the years, I've relaxed. I think it is actually wonderful that a lot of people think of themselves as curator or they love using the word curating, um, because that brings attention and further meaning to the job of actual curators. Um, I mean, I think uh, when the, so influencers, uh, I think what they do is, in a sense, not so different from what curators do. And what I mean by that is that that um, influencers are influential uh, for the exactly same reason that curators are uh, certified as curators, which is that, that you have proper um, knowledge base and that you have the power of discernment. I mean, these are the essential qualities and quali qualifications for curators, that you have to know what, what you are looking at, what you're talking about, uh, depending on what your area is, and that you have to have the eye um, that can tell the quality and relevance and importance. Um, you know, also curator is, uh, etymologically speaking, um, comes from both caring and curing, right? Um, mm. And that there's that wonderful older term um, that sometimes is still in use in in the UK that curators are called also keepers 
you know, keepers of important objects and artifacts. Um, mm. So I think it's important to remember that the, the classical or traditional definition and roles of what curators do, you know, it's not just about knowing and about being able to select, um, identify and select, but also keep. Um, and that you don't just keep objects in physical sense, but you keep the information and meaning and memory of that objects by interpreting it and displaying and explaining and sharing to the public. That's another form of keeping. So I hope that the influencers who are also our curators of our um, digital age in the public culture uh, should also understand that history and also remember that, you know. Um, and on the other side, of course, those of us uh, curators who are more traditionally trained um, in museum settings and by being keepers of collections, um, we of course are further inspired by the challenges and opportunities of the digital world. Um, that, that what does Instagram do to the work that we do? Um, I think it is an exciting possibility. I'm not very good at it, but but I certainly. <laughs> Uh, don't discount that at all. That that I think it brings a different, uh, yeah, different possibilities that that can enrich what we already do. So mm. yeah, no, I think I think it, it's a very fruitful cross pollination <laughs> uh, between the developing influencer culture and what we already have been doing in the museum world. Mm. Well, actually, further to that, I might just add one more question, if that's okay. I guess in if we're talking about the digital world, uh, you know, the way that we are so connected to our devices and younger generations, it just seems to be second nature to them. I wonder if that changes the way that you stage exhibitions at all. Is that something that's a consideration uh, moving forward into the future? And I guess also being a museum that's based in Asia, I think... Um, you know, personal phone ownership is relatively higher there than perhaps in other parts of the world. Is Yeah, is it something that's, you know, a consideration as you're putting together exhibitions? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I can't really claim that, that we have already reflected these considerations in what we have realized with the opening of the museum yet. Um, so, you know, the way that I have thought about the opening of the Amplus project, um, and also often said to my team of curators, is that yes, what Amplus is is that we are a new global, and the new and the first uh, global museum of visual culture in Asia, um, and that our museum colleagues as well as the public around the world are looking at us to uh, present the you know what a twenty first century museum can be. Um, that is a tall order. Uh, however, what I had to remind myself over the years and share with my team of curators is that without having built a proper 20th century museum, we cannot have a 21st century museum. And what I mean by the 20th century museum is that, that you know, like the institutions that I referred to before, because I had the privilege of working there, like the Walker and MoMA and other um, models and peer institutions such as Tate Modern and the Pompidou, we have learned from their um, 
museum practice, which is part of the now international best practice. And we needed to actually demonstrate that we can do this international best practice that has been formed in the 20th century museum culture. Um, so that's really what we confidently delivered, that I can say. Um, and of course, uh, there are new technologies that are available. I mean, you know, talking about something like um, uh, audio guide that they will use um, on your progressive website uh, on your smartphone. I mean, that is not a groundbreaking technology at this point, but that is a recent technology that museums have adopted and that we also have now adopted and deployed. Um, and then there are, of course, many other things that, that we're looking forward to, that, that as the digital culture and behavior evolves, and that is going to impact how people uh, see things and behave inside the galleries, you know, such as augmented reality, is that going to be in the future part of what we will put into consideration as we make exhibitions? Yes, absolutely. Um, the metaverse, uh, digital galleries and metaverse, <laughs> is that something that we should explore? Absolutely. Um, everybody's asking us about what is M-plus's position in terms of NFT art. And are we studying and looking at it? Yes, absolutely. So all of these things are going to certainly impact not only how we make exhibitions, but also what we do uh, in terms of the collection building, but also um, how we interpret all of these different topics, um, technology, new technologies that impact contemporary visual culture. That is just going to absolutely happen. Well, I'm excited to see it. Thank you so much for your time, Dorian. I think, um, you know, it goes without saying that our deepest sympathies go out to Hong Kong in the situation that you're in right now. And I know that the city will get past this current COVID hurdle. And once the country opens up again to international travellers, uh, I'm sure that M Plus yes. will be inundated with visitors. So one of them will be me. Thank you.